Uh, good morning. My name is Ed. We're really glad to have you this morning. And uh, I'm going to kind of feed us with a fire hose today. I'm apologizing in advance. A lot of information. This is going to be a lesson for our heads that I have prayed God will massage into our hearts because that's where it belongs. In the New Testament, followers of Christ are referred to as disciples more than by any other term. And generally speaking, a disciple is a learner or a student or a mentee. That's why we've said that a follower of Christ is a person who is learning to live and love like Jesus. And I think it's striking that Jesus' last instruction to his first disciples and to us was go make disciples of others. Stay with me. So this year at Gateway, this will be our focus, the process of discipling. We want to get back to the basics, back to being disciples and helping others be disciples. I mean, after the last two crazy years that we've had, don't you think it's time for us to get back to the basics? By the way, the best description I've heard of the last two years, I heard uh, somewhat recently from a TED Talk by a guy who did this in uh, late 2021. Uh, he, he described our last two years as spiritual malaise. He said it's not really depression. It's more like a society-wide, meh. It's just we don't want to get going. It's, it's malaise. And it's, it's uh, I think, one of the keys to, to getting us going, and it's time to get going. I think one of the keys to getting us going is to get back to the basics. So to help with that, this fall, we're going through some basic discipleship material in all of our small groups. First of all, we're trying to ensure that all of us have uh, the information that we need to get started in our life with Christ. And secondly, we're reminding ourselves that this information, this basic information that we're going over, is it, this is what we need to be sharing with those who are outside of God's love to get them started on the process of discipleship. In other words, we're trying to, to raise our antenna to increase our awareness of those around us who need this message. Now, for the past two weeks here on Sunday morning, I have previewed the principle here that, that we then went over in our small groups, and I'm going to do that again this morning one more time. Then next week, we're going to start on a new series that I'm really excited about. Okay, so the first week, we talked, if you were here, you may remember, two weeks ago, we talked about God's love. And in fact, in my small group, we had an awesome discussion about uh, when we have experienced God's love personally. And specifically, in that study, we talked about how Jesus demonstrates God's love. He was the full and final demonstration of God's love. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is the way to gain access to the Father. Again, making sure we have the information that we need to get started on our spiritual journey, but also reminding ourselves that this is the information we need to share with others who are outside of God's love. We don't come into a relationship with God. This is what we were designed for, to be in a relationship with God. We don't enter that relationship without believing in Jesus. He is the passport. He's the means of entry. That's what we talked about. And then today, we're looking at a third key truth that has enabled us to get started on our spiritual journey and a truth that we need to be passing on to others, and it's a big one. Here it is. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. So this morning, let's dive into the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think of what we're going to cover today like a, like a seminar, only instead of spending 
five sessions together over a bunch of weeks or, or a long weekend. We're going to go at blazing speed all on a Sunday morning. Obviously, we won't be able to go into any depth. We're just aiming at exposure. Again, I'm talking to your head. And to get it all in, I apologize. I've even, I'm threatening to be a little long today. So I've taken out all the illustrations. So stay with me. It's going to be some work on all of our parts. Buckle up. Lots of information. Uh, we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit is. And then we're going to look at the six primary things, the six main things the Holy Spirit does, according to the Scriptures. And I promise I'll have you out of here before Tuesday morning. All right, so what is the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? In short, the Holy Spirit is God. Or if you prefer, uh, more technically, the Holy Spirit is one person of the three-personed God, the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is one person of the three-personed God, the Trinity. Well, in other words, the Holy Spirit is not a what. The Holy Spirit is a who. The, the, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. This is his preferred pronoun. Uh, why do we say that? Well, consistently throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is equated with God, and he does work that only God can do. Let me just give you a couple of examples, and there are many. In Isaiah 6, 9, from the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah heard God say to him, follow me in this, go say to this people, and then God gave him a, a short rebuke that he wanted him to deliver to the people. God said to Isaiah, go say this to the people. But then in Acts 28, 25, this same quote with reference to Isaiah is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Another example, in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the apostles are rebuking a couple in the Jerusalem church because they've done something squirrely with their offering. And Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart, look at this, to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Then he follows, you have not lied to men but to God, meaning the Holy Spirit is equated with God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now look, pause this playlist here for just one second. Let me step outside of this immediate topic to kind of illustrate this. Uh, there have been four centuries in the history of the church from the time of Jesus that have been consumed with debates, about fiery debates, about the deity of Christ or the, or the godness of Jesus, let's say. The fourth century, the fifth century, the 19th century, and the 20th century, for those of you who are fans of history. And by the way, the jury is still out on the 21st century. It looks like this will be a fifth century in which the deity of Christ is wildly debated. That means, you know, we, we are living in, in one of the periods of, of disagreement about whether or not Jesus is God. Over the centuries, Jesus has been seen in various ways by various groups. He's been seen, for example, as, as one of the greatest humans ever, as, as a unique prophet, as a model of human authenticity, as a supreme example of an ethical person. He's been seen as a revolutionary or an angel of power or an adopted son. These various views are held by, as I said, many different groups, groups like theological liberals who, who are actually friendly to Christians, or by Muslims, or by Hindus, or by Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, or by atheists. I'm, I'm not saying that all those groups are the same, but, but they do share this one thing. None of them recognize the deity of Christ. 
None of them see Jesus as the way to the Father. None of them recognize the eternality of Jesus and his eternal oneness with the Father. All right, back to our topic. This is interesting because few groups refuse to recognize the deity of the Holy Spirit. What, what is usually denied is the unique personhood of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. Many see the Holy Spirit as just a, a spiritual expression of God, like my spirit is an expression of me. They don't see the Holy Spirit as a, as a separate thing, as his own person. But the Bible, and specifically Jesus, affirm both the deity, the essential godness of the Holy Spirit, but also the unique personhood of the Holy Spirit. What? The Holy Spirit is God. He is one of the persons of the Trinity. I'm going to drill on this for just one more minute. Uh, I want to give you the best example, the best illustration of the Trinity that I've ever heard. It was offered by C.S. Lewis. If you have not heard this before, it's worth remembering. So follow this. Lewis asks us to imagine drawing a straight line on a piece of paper. This is a one-dimensional figure. Then he says, imagine drawing a square. This would be a two-dimensional figure exhibiting both width and depth. Lewis reminds us that while the second figure, look at it, is completely different from the first, it nevertheless uses elements of the first figure. Are you following me? Uh, it, that is, several straight lines are used to make the square. Then Lewis suggests that we imagine drawing a three-dimensional cube. The cube is actually the combination of six squares. And he summarizes here, and I'm going to quote Lewis, quote, in other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler level. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways that you could not imagine if you only knew the simpler levels. Now the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple, rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings, just as in two dimensions, say on a flat piece of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in ways in which we who do not live on that level cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. The Holy Spirit is God. He is one of the three persons of the Trinity. Okay. <laughs> After we've cleared all that mystery up for the last 2,000 years, what, what does the Holy Spirit do? What is the function of the Holy Spirit? Remember, we don't have time to offer much detail. Let's just get a, a quick overview. I'm going to offer six main things that the Holy Spirit does according to Scripture. Number one. The Holy Spirit participated in creation. Along with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit created the world. In other words, He creates. Look at this opening to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. If you're not a church, if you don't have church in your background, you're probably familiar with this verse. What I want you to focus on is the last phrase. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Now that word hovering is only used two times in the Old Testament, but one of those times is very similar to this usage. It's used in exactly the same way. It's in Deuteronomy 32.11. I don't have it on the screen, but I want you to hear this. Deuteronomy 32.11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings and cat, to catch them and carries them aloft. All right, so think of that image for a second. Think of the care and protection of Mother Eagle. Think of the nurture and the watchfulness as she hovers over her young, making sure that nothing happens, instructing them, teaching them how to fly. Now apply that to the work of the Holy Spirit in the creation of the world, hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is a creator, first of all. Secondly, the Holy Spirit accomplished our new birth. Our spiritual life is owing to the work of the Holy Spirit. If you were here two weeks ago, you may remember our discussion of being born again and how this experience is the start of our spiritual life. Something brand new happens in us. We, we compared it to installing a brand new operating system on a computer, a whole new way of organizing our lives and organizing our thinking. Well, that work is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the life giver. All right, so far, we've said two things. He's creator, and he is the life giver. Two things so far. He's creator, he's the life giver. Third, the Holy Spirit teaches us the things of God. We don't understand God. We can't without the work of the Holy Spirit in us. He is, in fact, central to our discipleship process. It is his activity in us that drives our growth toward living and loving like Jesus. I'm going to leave you with this, uh, several verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a second. Check this out. He quotes, by the way, here from Isaiah, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard. The Holy Spirit teaches us this, searches all things, even the deep things of God, so that we understand what God has freely given. We cannot understand the things of God without the Holy Spirit. He is our teacher. He teaches us the things of God. His activity in us drives our growth toward living and loving like Jesus. In a sense, the Holy Spirit, as I said, is the discipler of all of us. Fourth principle, the Holy Spirit is proving the world to be in the wrong. I love this one. This comes from John chapter 16. Verses 8 through 11. And I'm going to read this morning John 16, 7 through 15. And it's going to include this section right here. Mike, you can just stay on this screen. But I want you to hear John 16, 7 through 15. And let's do some spiritual aerobics. Stand with me out of uh, reverence for God's word. This is a section in which Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and this is specifically one of the places where he promises that the Holy Spirit is coming. Listen to what Jesus says here. Beginning verse 7 of chapter 16. But I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor or the comforter or the helper or the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, 
because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. You may be seated. I wish we had time to pick that apart. There, there are several things in there that, that we've already uh, referenced. But let me just talk about this one aspect of it. The Holy Spirit is proving the world to be wrong. The, the passage, uh, he promises the Holy Spirit. He talks about what an advantage it's going to be for him to come. Since he would convict the world. I love the way one Greek scholar translated this phrase, this convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says that that, that phrase should, should read, he will prove to the world that they are in the wrong. Think about it. While Jesus was here on the planet, he was the embodiment of righteousness. The right kind of actions, the right character, the right relationship with God. And he consistently showed people their sin and, and convicted them of it. Plus, he reminded his listeners that judgment would eventually come. But after Jesus' ascension, he was no longer here. However, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, that message gets spread abroad, everywhere. He proves to the world that they are in the wrong. That's why, or partly why, in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says, look, the world knows who God is. He's made it evident to them. The Holy Spirit does that work. This is what he does. By the way, this principle has revolutionized the way I think about and my efforts in sharing God's love with others. I've realized that I don't need to convince anyone. I don't need to answer questions that people aren't asking. I don't need to remind the world around me what they're doing wrong. The Holy Spirit is doing that. They're resisting him. But he's at work. I just need to speak what God gives me the opportunity to speak. I need my antenna up and my heart attuned to what he wants me to say. He's already done most of the work. Again, they may reject that work, but that's not my problem or my responsibility. Sharing what he gives me, the opportunity to share, that is my responsibility. The Holy Spirit is the convictor of the world. He's the creator. He's the life giver. He's the teacher, and he's the convictor. All right, four so far. Now, I'm going to pause because that's a lot of information, and I want you to interact with it. Which of these four is uh, the most interesting to you? And let me ask it another way. Which of these four aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit is, is something that you would most want to dig into, that you feel like is is maybe most needed in your life. Uh, the number five thing that the Holy Spirit does, his fifth function, is the Holy Spirit empowers our Christian lives. His work in us is the fuel that drives our holiness, the fervency of our devotion, and the force of our testimony. Without the Holy Spirit, what we have are just words. But with the Holy Spirit, our words have power. Our words have power. I have experienced that from some of you before, speaking into my life, correction or encouragement. 
I've experienced that in my own heart and mind. Sometimes on a Sunday morning, we gather together. I've, I've had experiences before where, you know, Diane and I will pray in the morning, how you feeling? Uh, today's going to be kind of boring. And I get here and something happens. Well, the Holy Spirit happens. He speaks. To, to best explain this principle, let me try to clarify some New Testament language around this idea. This will be a familiar kind of soup for, for some of you who've been around the faith for a while. The first Christians sometimes used the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit to describe their encounter with the Holy Spirit. And it's important to remember this. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit when we are truly converted. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit when we are truly converted. When we surrender our mind, heart, and will to following Jesus, that can only happen because of the Spirit's baptism. To use our earlier analogy, we get our new operating system because the Holy Spirit pours over us. In fact, he comes to live in us. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. That's the wrong reference. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, for an example of the language used this way. Look at this. Look especially at verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit. Same kind of language. There are a couple of analogies here, right? Uh, but one of them is being baptized by the Spirit. And I want you to look at what it means, what he's suggesting here. The baptism of the Holy Spirit drew us into relationship with God and into the church. When we become a Christian, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's clear from Scripture. But that same phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, is used somewhat differently by Luke and by Jesus in the book of Acts. Well, I want you to look now at Luke chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 and verse 8. On one occasion, while eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait, this is Jesus speaking, but wait for my gift, uh, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, and we read one of the places where he spoke about it. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then skip down to verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we saw this experience in Acts chapter 2. It was a dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit. From this, we can gather that there is a divine power, literally, flowing through us when we experience the Holy Spirit. He empowers our words, our actions, our prayers, our testimony. And we can also gather from these verses that this empowering, this, this baptism of the Spirit, which happened at our conversion, can also happen a month later, a year later, or 15 years later. Why do I say that? Well, you see, I don't think Luke believed that the apostles weren't Christians at this point, nor did Jesus they had already experienced Jesus resurrected. They had worshipped him and been filled with joy. They had already dedicated their lives to the cause. They were already sharing stories about him. They were born-again Christians already, which means they had experienced the Holy Spirit. But there was another empowering waiting for them, an empowering for a, an important thing that God needed them to do. I like the way John Piper explains this. He said this, 
I think when Jesus says you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in this verse, he means you will receive extraordinary power for Christ-exalting ministry. That means there are times in our lives when the Holy Spirit pours himself over us so that we can resist some temptation finally and fully or to enable us to pray for someone with his power or to enable us to speak with clarity and boldness and extraordinary power. I know some of you have experienced this. If you have not, I have prayed for this for you this morning. I've been with some of you and witnessed you walking or speaking to someone else with something way beyond your own reserves. I believe this can happen more than once in our lifetimes. I believe it's something to pray for. This is also the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is his activity in us, pouring himself over us and moving out through us. All right, let me say one more thing about this topic. Some of you grew up in a Pentecostal setting. Welcome, thank you for putting up with the rest of us, we're boring. And I suspect all of us have some ideas about Pentecostalism. Uh, for much of my Christian life, I have assumed that Pentecostalism shares two distinctives that are different from other Christian approaches. Number one, I have assumed that they believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was always a second separate experience of God. It, it's always separate from becoming a Christian. When we become Christians, we encounter Jesus. But when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, this is what I thought they believed, we encounter the Holy Spirit, and with that, we experience God's power, really. And while they could happen at the same time, they usually do not. So in Pentecostal settings, they're always looking for, or I assume they were always looking for a second experience of God's power and God's Spirit. Secondly, I have always assumed that Pentecostals believe that the evidence of this spirit baptism was speaking in tongues. Do you know this experience? You, you may have heard of this before. This is one of the gifts of the Spirit that is talked about in Scripture, and a few of you have this gift. I've actually been surprised, however, in reading uh, recent Pentecostal authors over the last number of years who have explained that there are many different views of the spirit and of these distinctives within Pentecostalism. In fact, increasingly, Pentecostal authors are suggesting that the main thing that all Pentecostals share in common is a strong belief that our life with God is experiential. It's not just intellectual. It's not just head knowledge. God moves in us. We actually experience God's actual power. And while I do not agree with these two distinctives of Pentecostalism, I think they are a misreading of the book of Acts. And I can explain that another time if you have questions about it. I, 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 I do believe that our, our relationship with God is experiential. God moves in us. I believe we actually experience God's actual power, and every page of the Scriptures affirm that. And I also believe this emphasis within Pentecostalism helps explain why that movement has exploded across Christianity over the last 120 years while all other uh, branches of Christianity have diminished. 
The Holy Spirit empowers our Christian lives. His work in us is the fuel that drives our holiness, the fervency of our devotion, and the force of our testimony. And we are in need of his power. And if you have never experienced his power, I, commend, I, I recommend that you pray for it. Ask him. He is our enabler, our empowerer. All right, sixth and final. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of a good, effective life in us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us that turns us into the kind of people we want to be. Look at Galatians 5, and 23. It's fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is the kind of people we want to be. And I don't just mean because we're religious. I mean because we're made in God's image. This is what we all long to be. We all want to be loved and we want to be loving. We all want to experience joy. We want to live peaceful lives. This is the kind of person that we want to be. And the Holy Spirit is the one that produces this, that makes us these kind of people. He slowly turns us into the people who look and live and love like Jesus. All right, so he is our creator, hovering over the work of God. He is a life giver and gives us life, speaking newness and life into us. He is our teacher. He shows us the things of God. He's discipling all of us. He is the convictor, proving to the world that they are in the wrong. He is our enabler. He is the one who empowers our lives. And he is the producer, changing us into the, the people we want to be. Let me end this morning with an illustration that uh, Pastor Mark Batterson shared about the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come. You might not know the name Angelo Dundee. Some of you do, but I bet you you've heard of Muhammad Ali. He's the most famous boxer of all time. And for more than two decades, Angelo Dundee was the, the man in Ali's corner, literally. He was Ali's corner man. Uh, he was the one who cut Ali's eyes to keep them open so he could see to continue fighting when he got hit in the face. He was the one encouraging and shouting instructions from the side. He was the one who uh, wet Ali down and kept him motivated between rounds, reminding him of, of what their plan was for the fight. Angelo Dundee described his job one time like this. When you're working with a fighter, you're a surgeon, an engineer, a psychologist, and many other things. He's the one who made Ali float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. He was Ali's corner man. Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have something even better than a corner man in our corner. We have the Holy Spirit. He's the ultimate corner man. Doing work for us that we could not do producing in us things that we cannot produce on our own, releasing in us things that are beyond us, creating and giving life constantly and consistently. Uh, I saw an interesting thing this week. Um, some Southern Methodist University, SMU, uh, did a study of uh, Christian songs. It's like the songs we sing in, in worship settings. And, uh, you know, some of them cover topics about the Christian life, but those, those songs that address God or 
the, the persons of God. 68% of our songs, we talk about Jesus. 7% of our songs, we talk about the Father. 3%, we talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the often overlooked person of the Trinity, and I bet he, he is in many of your lives as well. And this is where we get our power in our connection to him. This is what produces in us the kind of people that we want to be. This is where we get our life. What do you, uh, what do you need to be learning about the Holy Spirit? What do you need to be reminded of about the Holy Spirit? What is the, when is the last time you sought the power of the Spirit? Pour yourself over me, Holy Spirit. Fill me. Baptize me for what's coming next in my life. Let me close in prayer. Let's stand together. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We pray that you would move in our minds and our hearts and our chests. Break us open and empower us. Give us life. We wait on you. this morning, what an advantage it is that you have come. We surrender to your work in us. It's you. It's you. That's what we've been seeking. It's you. We thought it was something else. We thought it was career. We thought it was some habit. We thought it was a relationship, but it's you.